I think we did this last week. I read a New Testament counterpart and went back to our Old Testament sermon. So Ezekiel 34 is the sermon that my sermon text will be, but the counterpart to Ezekiel 34, how the Lord is my shepherd, is John 10, obviously. So let's start there. John 10, verses 1 through 18. God's word. Truly I say to you that he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he's a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him because they do not know the voice of a stranger. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, just as the sheep, uh, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired man and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired man. He's not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Even as the Father knows me, I know the Father. Lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice. They will become one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I have received from my Father. And then our passage is in Ezekiel 34. We looked at 1 through 10 last week, but we'll read the rest of our section um, 11 to the end. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep, and I will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in the good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountain of Israel. I will feed my flock. I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I'll bring back the scattered. I will bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I'll feed them with my judgment. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the male goats. Is it too slight a thing for you that you should feed in the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the rest of the pastures, or that you should drink of the clear waters, that you must foul the rest with your feet? As for my flock, they must eat what you tread down with your feet and drink what you foul with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and with shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns 
until you have scattered them abroad. Therefore I will deliver my flock, and they will no longer be a prey, and I will judge between one sheep and another. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places around my hill a blessing. I will cause showers to come down in their sermons. They will be showers of blessings. Also, the tree of the field will yield its fruit and the earth will yield its increase. They will be secure in their land. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bars of their yoke and I have delivered them from the hand of those who have enslaved them. They will no longer be prey to the nations and the beasts of the earth will not devour them, but they will live securely and no one will make them afraid. I will establish for them a renowned planting place. They will not again be victims of famine in the land. They will not endure the insults of the nations anymore. Then they will know that I, the Lord, their God, am with them and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. As for you, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, you are men, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're very thankful for your Bible. We're thankful, Lord, for the men that translated it from the Hebrew and the Greek into the English so that we could understand it, we who are English speakers and and those who read English, Lord. Thank you for their labors. We pray that we would be respectful of the believing men and women that have gone before us in the great cloud of witnesses, that we would not um, be like the, the men and the women in the time of the judges, doing what's right in our own eyes, being a church unto ourselves, uh, cut apart from the rest of the body, Lord. How um, ridiculously prideful that would be to think that wisdom begins and ends with us. Help us um, value your book, help us value your church, and value church history and the men and the women that have gone before that we would learn uh, from them. Help us, Lord, believe the promise that you are the good shepherd and we're sheep. We live in a land of wolves, but we um, are always in the presence of the good shepherd, and so we're safe. I comfort every soul here tonight. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. This particular section that I read um, actually has three sections the way that we read this morning, and my intention is only to deal with two of the three, and I'll bring that out in just a bit. Um, if you were with us last week, you remember in verses 1 through 10... This particular chapter, 34, using agricultural language for for an agricultural people. In 1 through 10, God rebukes the faithless shepherds that were shepherding his people Israel at this particular time. We're in the Babylonian captivity around about that particular time. Uh, Daniel, uh, Jeremiah, and obviously Ezekiel writing about that time. And we mentioned last week that the false shepherds could be variously the king, uh, kings, princes in Israel, and then prophets certainly and priests certainly. And God indicts them as being faithless. And they're doing two things, which God says I'm aware of and I'm highly displeased with. He calls them false shepherds. And he, he charges them with, with being abusive to the sheep. 
and they're, they're doing, as I say, two things, one negative and one positive. Negatively, they're directly um, hurting the sheep. They're doing things which hurt, hurt the, the, they're eating the sheep, they're roasting them rather than feeding them, and they're hurting the weak ones. He gets back at that in the middle section here, that they're, they're physically hurting them. And the application would be a false teacher, a false minister, does positive harm to the people of Jesus Christ. They actively hurt them spiritually, so nothing is neutral. And then they, they are not providing them the good that the shepherd's required to give them. And then in the old epoch, in the new epoch, the thing that the shepherd was to feed the, the, the sheep of God upon is the word of God. And so it's not to be the words of man, the prophecies of man, the imaginations of their mind. And again, uh, Jeremiah writes against some of these fellows and says, you say that you're sent, you say that you have a message, but God didn't give you the message and you're running and he didn't send you. That's a, that's a, that, that is not feeding the, the, the people of God upon the word of God. So, they're, so God charges them with faith, faithlessness. They're, they're faith, faithless to their charge. They've not been, they are, as I say, just they're faithless to their charge. So God charges them uh, with it. And he, he promises them in the last section, and then he promises them again, I'm going to take the sheep from you. And um, in truth, what these false shepherds were, which is what the Apostle Paul gets out in Acts chapter 20 or 21. He says to the Ephesian elders, Paul does, as he's getting ready to leave them, and he's weeping, and he knows something through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that after he leaves, he says to the church leaders, now you be on guard for, for the flock of Jesus. From your own numbers, there will arise some who will be, in reality be ravenous wolves, and they'll seek to devour the lambs of Christ. So these false shepherds are false sheep, in, in reality, they're wolves. And God says that he will deal with them. It's true in the old, and it's true in the new. Um, I looked at a number of particular Bible teachers this week for, um, I was doing a bit of study uh, for a particular person. It's terrifying. The, the, um, the church scene is filled with false shepherds and false prophets, men that have no business um, speaking anything in front of anyone and they're leading the sheep of God astray the sheep don't know it but God knows it the sheep should know it if we have the spirit and we have the Bible so the first section deals with a rebuke it's a promise of ju judgment what we're looking at tonight I think is a more encouraging word certainly in as I mentioned this section has three sections within it God promises to to do away with the faithless shepherds, but he promises to send the consummately faithful shepherd. He promises to replace the bad shepherd with the consummately good shepherd, and we know that the good shepherd is God come in the flesh. God promises to save his sheep. So that's what we're looking at. I mentioned the three sections. Um, verses, um, what is it, 11 through 16a, is a promise of salvation. God says, I will come and save you. I will come and shepherd you. That's 11 to 16a. Then from 16b to 22, God interjects this section where he promises, again, this is a judgment section. He promises to judge the fat sheep who are abusive of the lean sheep. The fat sheep are indicative of the false professing uh, believers. They're harmful to the flock. And so there's a judgment section there. But then after that, God returns to the salvation theme again in 23 through 31, where he promises to shepherd his people, Israel, in the person of Messiah. Um, 
he says, uh, David, my servant. And, and that refers to David's root, root of Jesse, David's son, David's Lord. That's obviously the Davidic Messiah. I want to just deal with the first portion and the second portion, and I want to combine them. We have talked about the judgment of God, I think, um, fairly adequately. I know sometimes ministers are accused of being weenies, and you jumped over that hard passage, and you won't tell people the hard thing that God is a holy God judging sin. Um, I don't think that's me. I don't. I don't. I don't think that's me. I, I think I do try to say what God says on those things. Um, so just as it, it would be wrong to be lopsided uh, in the presentation of God's judgment, I think it would be lopsided not to present the presentation of God's promise of salvation. So I just want to deal with the more comforting aspects of this passage, the first section and the second section. God says, I'll shepherd my sheep. I'm going to save them. I'm going to care for them. And then he tells us how he's going to do it. He's going to do it in Christ. So tonight's an, an encouragement passage. Um, we've passed from, from, from death to life, darkness to light. There's no condemnation for those in Christ those who are found in the Good Shepherd. And and that's what I want to look at. I want to look at the salvation. Uh, verse 11, it's helpful to look at that again. This is the prototypical statement that the the um, the prophets would make. They'd say, it is written, the word of the Lord came to me, a vision came to me, for thus says the Lord God. Very, very common. It, it, it's really helpful for us to remind ourselves once again the importance of this particular verse nothing in the bible is arbitrary god inspires ezekiel to tell the the people of god thus saith the lord and because we're bible people and we read the bible a lot um, we can just skim over that we fly over that but we really shouldn't this is a this whole section is a promise i've mentioned this before but it's worth mentioning there was a person in my family not a believer a person i love very very much who said to another person in my family who's a believer and the believer said, well, there's lots of promises in, in the Bible. To which the person I love, who's not a believer, said, God never makes any promises to us. Beloved, that's, that's a very sad thing. And it's just an ignorance. And I don't mean that in a mean, in a mean way. It's just ignorance. You don't know the Bible. The Bible is filled with promises. The Bible is a book of promises. It runs from Genesis 3.15. I promise. I promise I'm going to rescue you from the devil. I promise I'm going to bring the seed of the woman in. I promise I'm going to crush the head of the serpent. I promise. I promise I'm going to save you. I promise I'm going to have a saved promised people. I promise I'm going to put you in the promised land, which is what this is getting at. I promise. I promise I'm going to take you to a place where there's going to be no more tears, no more wolves, no more false shepherds. I'm going to be there. Emmanuel, I promise. The whole book is a, is a, is a book of promises. And we've said this a lot. Many years ago, there was the movement of the promise keepers, and I'm not really picking on that movement. At the time it came out, being I, I was sinfully cynical. It's not, it's not a pleasant thing to be cynical, but I was sinfully cynical. And I would almost want to scoff, saying, we're not promise keepers. We're promise breakers. Even the best Christian, God is a promise keeper. And God is promising. And we are to live we, this, this is written to a beleaguered people. These are suffering people. They're being abused by the false shepherds. They're in the Babylonian captivity. And God says, I promise. And thus saith the Lord. And that's the importance. It's not a man. 
many of us have mums and dads that we loved profusely and they profusely loved us and they made promises to us and they couldn't keep it. And not for sinful reasons. They don't live forever. They can't always be with us. They go home. They go away. They fly away. And they can't make good on their promise. And beloved, we're the same way. We make promises to our children and our grandchildren and sometimes for sinful reasons we can't carry them out. And sometimes for non-sinful reasons, we will go away. We can't do what our children and grandchildren need, what God brings them. I'm going to put down all of your enemies and I'm going to give you rest. I'm going to give you peace. No more enemies, no more sickness, nothing. I'm going to bring you with... That's God. God. God makes a promise. And so when we were children, our dad said, the dad that we loved and the dad that we trusted said, I promise. And we trusted that promise. How much more should we trust when God says, thus saith the Lord. I know you're being abused right now, but not always. I'm going to come and shepherd you. You're lost. I'm going to find you. I promise. There's a place in the book of Hebrews where God swears with an oath. Well, God is truth personified. So when God says anything, it's true. We can write amen and amen after it. And we should build our entire life on just one word of God. But God condescends to us. He says, come, let us reason. He doesn't have to do that. He can just say, thus say it, God. Boom. But he condescends. In the, the place I'm referencing in the book of Hebrews, he says, I swear with an oath by my own name. Why would God have to say, say, reconfirm, and reconfirm? Because he knows our frames. Is it really true? Is it really true? There was a believing woman who said to her believing husband, as she was dying, he was reading to her Romans 8. And she said, is it really true? Is it really true? This is not the words of a doubting unbeliever. These are the words of an un, these are the words of a believer who's just overwhelmed with the hardship of life. And the promises are so good, you think, is it true? Is it really true? Is it really true? Thus saith the Lord. We live in a day that think they're enlightened. Beloved, we're not enlightened. Um, we live in a first world country, obviously. There's just a thin veneer. They're just a thin veneer. Um, Once the veneer comes off, it shows what we really are. It's a very difficult and dangerous place to live. And people are difficult and dangerous people to live among. And we need to be told by God, I'm going to come and save you, I promise. And so in our age, to be a Bible believer, if you're a professional and you tell your friends, you know, I believe the Bible. I believe that the word of the, it's the inspired word of God and it's my only rule for faith and practice. If you tell them that, you're probably not going to get a raise. Um, they're going to think that you... Are, so you're a fundamentalist. You're just kind of this narrow-minded person to say, well, I, I just build my whole life on what God says in the Bible. I hope to God that we all do. I hope to God everybody in this room builds our life on God has said it. God has said it. And there'll be things in God's word that we don't know how it works. Lots of them. We don't have to figure out how it works. We just have to know what God has promised. Jesus says, where I am, there you will be what? Also, how does that work? I don't have any idea. I know for a fact it's going to happen. I know for a fact it's going to happen.
God says, I'm going to come and shepherd my sheep. All of these men have been faithless, and I'm not going to let my sheep be fodder for them anymore. At my appointed time, I will come, and I will do it. There's a doctrine called deism. With a passage like this, it's stunning to me that the doctrine of deism ever took root. The doctrine of deism says, well, we're, we're not atheists. We believe in God, hence deism. We believe in God. We're respectable people. We're intellectual people. But this is what we think, that there is this God. He created all things. And then he created laws to govern creation. And then he wound it up, and then he, he went away. Beloved, what do you see in this passage? I have in my Bible highlighted, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, my sheep, my sheep, my sheep. I will find, I will seek, I will care, I will preserve, I will protect, I will. Is that the God of the deist? No. The God of the deist is no God. It's not the Christian God. I know some of our early founding fathers of this country were deists. And they said, well, don't get us wrong. We're raised by a Christian mom, Christian dad. We have a Bible. We just don't believe all this intimacy business. Thus saith the Lord. We don't have any right. We didn't write it. We have no right to pick and choose what we think is true. When God says, I am a God who's far off, but I'm a God who's near. He is transcendent. That's true. That he is above his creation. The Bible is not only a book of provident, uh, promises, it's a book of God's imminence. That means nearness. Our God wants to be known by his people. Our God wants to live with his people. Why he does? For his own glory. Who would want to live with us? I don't even want to live with me half the time. Mystery of mysteries. The God of heaven and earth wants to live with man, his creature, and fallen creatures that he means to restore in Christ. How could deism ever take place with even this chapter? I promise I'm going to come and shepherd you. Where where, where you're lost, I'll find you. Where you're broken, I'm going to bind you. I will do it. This just, it shouts the intimacy of God. Where do we see the imminence of God personified? The nearness of God. That God is with his people. Christ, Emmanuel. So when someone says, well, God is just far away, he doesn't care. This book, this chapter, these two sections says to suffering sheep, underline, I care for you. I, God, your God cares for you. We need to hear that. We're herding sheep. I said it last week. I had a, and I said it last week in the pulpit. I believe that most of the people that we meet, Christian or non-Christian, in some way they're hurt. They're hurting. There's a saying: "Hurt birds hurt people, or hurt people hurt people." We're all hurting. We're all hurt birds. And even the strongest of Christians need to be, needs to be told by God, his God, her God, God loves you and cares for you. We need to hear that. This is not being Arminian. It's not being a weenie. We need to be told by God, which is what he's doing to people in captivity and being abused by their shepherds. God says, they don't care for you, but I care for you. They don't love you, but I love you. The home, the Christian home, should be like a little oasis for the men. And for the women, too. But I'm thinking as a husband, and I know this is true. I read my Puritan writers. And the man goes off into the world, and what's it like? (laughs) Thorns and thistles. But when he comes back, what is he coming back to? His closest friend in all the world. A woman who loves him like nobody's business. And so, yes, all of these things out here are abusing the 
stuffing out of me. But what keeps me encouraged and happy is I'm going to a place into a one that loves me. I have all of these other hard things that I'm dealing with, but it's her love and her care for me and her friendship that helps me put those other things in a right place. This is that in the zenith. You're in captivity. How are you going to deal with captivity? You're in Babylonian captivity. And God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to take care of you. I love you. What more do you need? What more do we need? God says, I will, I will do it. They're all sorry. A whole lot of them, they're sorry. We're, I'm going to come and get you. I sent you away because you were faithless. And I'm going to bring you back because I'm faithful to my promise. I said I'm going to bring you back after 70 years. But this whole thing is just the love of God. One of my favorite moderns is um, Morris Roberts. And he said we need to have the felt presence of God. We need to feel the love of God. I, I hate to say feelings, but I have to say feelings. We have to feel that we are loved by God. This, is, this whole chapter is God saying to his people, I love you, and I'm going to care for you. And not only is he a loving God, but he is an omniscient and an omnipotent God. If God were merely love, but he was impotent, it would just be sentimental love. God would say, I love you, but I'm powerless to do anything about it. But that's not the love of this God. God is not only, not only love, but he's also infinite in his power, infinite in his presence, infinite in his knowledge. He says to the false shepherds, I know who you are, and I'm going to judge you. And he says to the suffering sheep, I know who you are, and I know what you're suffering, and I'm going to care for you. They're not going to care for you. I'm going to care for you. And I know you're in Babylonian captivity, or as Israel, I know you're in the Assyrian captivity. I'm going to get you. And I'm going to bring you back, and I'm going to bind you up. And then he uses this agricultural language. I'm going to put you on these high mountains with green pastures. It's going to be like living in where Heidi lived when we were kids. Heidi eating the cheese sandwich with her grandfather. It's going to be living up in Switzerland. You ever see those pictures? Like, man, who doesn't want to live in Switzerland? Everybody wants to live in Switzerland. This picture, he says to these people, you're in, a, you're in pain, you're in privation. I'm going to bring you into a place of superabundance. This is not health and wealth. This is a picture of the eternal estate, in my opinion. This is a picture of heaven. I'm going to bring you to a place of infinite peace and purity and happiness and joy. No want, no sickness, no hunger, no famine, all green pastures. Beloved, until we go home, we're not going to experience that. But that's what God is promising to his people. And he says this to the people in their pain. And that's significant to us, beloved. I'm not the only one that's ever experienced this. You have experienced this. And I hope you're not experiencing it now. But if you are, I think here's a word of comfort. God says to his people in the pain, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to come and get you. It's going to be better. It will be okay. You're not always going to be crushed. You're not always going to be tore, torn to shreds by these. It's, it's not, your pain is not always going to go on. It's going to stop and then it will be wonderful. But he's saying it to them in the crucible. Beloved, we're all flesh and blood. I'm flesh and blood. When we're in the crucible, there is a connection between our pain, physical pain, emotional pain, and sometimes even the strength of our faith. Um, sometimes in our affliction, we can think, 
well, I don't think God does love me. I wouldn't let my kids go through this. I love my kids. I wouldn't let them go through. I would not do this. So maybe he doesn't love me. And maybe just God is just disciplining me, the daylights out of me for my sin. Does God discipline us? Yes. Does he, is every bit of affliction a testimony that God is displeased with us? No. Um, maybe I'm not a believer. Maybe that's why. He just doesn't care. Or maybe he's not even here. He, and, that, and, the, and the people busy abusing the sheep are saying that God's not watching out for you. He doesn't care about you. I'm actually going to devour you and abuse you. you, you there's no recourse. Um, this little fictitious God that you serve, he's not going to help you. And beloved, what happens? We sometimes are, we, we give in to that temptation. Um, unremitting difficulties and pain, can do, we, even the stoutest believer can break down. And then we start to doubt, well, maybe God really isn't with me. And God says to his people, that's not true. I'm with you right now. There's never a place. Psalm 139, is it Psalm 139? You go to the top of the mountain, he's there. The bottom of the mountain, he's there. Jesus, before he goes back, what does he say? I'm with you forever. I'm your shepherd. I'm with you by my spirit. That's what God is saying. All the men are sorry. I looked around. None of them had my heart. I'm going to do it. And then he comes to the second section, and he says, I'm going to do it in and through this man. He calls my servant David. Look at that. I'm going to come and shepherd you. God says he will. I will do it. I myself will do it. And so on and so on. Promise after promise after promise. Now God tells us in verse 23, Then I will shepherd, set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself, and he will be their shepherd. Now, this is not David. This is not reincarnation. Reincarnation is not biblical. I know there are some professing Christians who say, well, I used to live near one. I would say, well, I'm a Christian, but I believe in reincarnation. It's not a good idea to take Hinduism and stick it next to biblical Christianity because you end up destroying biblical Christianity. There were people a little bit ago, they tried to create this religion called Chrislam. Chrislam, and you can see what they're trying to do. It's a horribly blasphemous idea. It's a horribly blasphemous idea. One of the men that tried to create Chrislam, just like the other fellow I was referencing, this other man who's a very popular entertainer, just actually converted to Islam. So it's a horrible idea to have any kind of synergistic religion between true Christianity and, and anything else, which is obviously false by its very definition. But the notion is not that David's coming back from the dead and shepherding the people. Uh, David's not omniscient. David is not uh, omnipotent. David is not omnipresent. David is not God come in the flesh. And so the there is a principle called the analogy of faith. The analogy of faith. It's a theological term. And the idea is that Scripture interprets Scripture. As a Protestant, we believe Scripture interprets Scripture. And how the analogy of faith works is that a related, clear passage helps us understand a related, unclear passage. Related is the key. So something which is related to that harder-to-understand passage, which is more clear, helps us understand that. So uh, Scripture interprets Scripture. So when we have a passage that says, David will be the one after God says, I am going to do it, how can God be the shepherd? And now we're going to 
David is the shepherd. And just to throw this out there, there are people, we live in the, the silly um, social whatever, people, everybody's on, on the internet. You have people saying, Jesus never said he was God, and they make videos, and there's the contradictions all over the Bible. There will be people who say, right there, right there, right there. That's the contradiction. God said he's going to be the shepherd. Now it's going to be David. Oh, who knows? Beloved, unbelievers are spiritually biased against God. The Bible is a closed book to them. They hate God. And so they're not going to be neutral. They're not going to be fair. They can be sharp as a jack in other things. But when they come to the Bible, it's a closed book to them. And so they're going to say, well, there's a contradiction. But if you are loved by God and you love God, you say, no, I know my God. He's a loving and a wonderful God. And he always truth personified. And this appears to be a contradiction, but I know it's not. And I know he'll show me how to reconcile it. You see the difference in how we approach the Bible? You better show me why you're really a fake God and I don't believe anything that you show me anyways. Good luck. As Calvin liked to say, it's a closed book, but not to the believer. Jeremiah 23 is the counterpart to Ezekiel 34, and it gives us the key. God says, very similar language, I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture. They'll be fruitful, multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them. They'll tend them. They'll not be afraid any longer, nor terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord God. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will raise his king. This is King Christ. Jesus Christ is David's son. Jesus Christ is David's Lord. Jesus Christ is called the root of David. Jesus Christ is called the root of Jesse. He is the line of the tribe of Judah. That's this promise. So Judah is the imperial of the kingly line. Christ cruise comes through them. He promises, God promises to David in, in um, the book of Samuel that he promises to bring a king through his line and that his kingdom will have no end. And he will shepherd his people. And how do we reconcile God saying, I am going to do it, but the one who comes through David will do it? How do we reconcile that? Easy for the believer. Who or what is Christ? Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. See, for the unbeliever, it says he's just a, just a guy. He's just a fellow. Gandhi said, oh, yeah, I like to read stuff about Jesus. But he's just a really interesting prophet. And the Bible is a closed book to you. Jesus Christ is not just an interesting prophet. He is Jehovah come in the flesh. He's Yahweh come in the flesh. That's why in the book of John, we have seven sayings. I am the good shepherd. I am, we read it. I am ego ami. It's the equivalent. It's the Hebrew, the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Jehovah or Yahweh. He says, "I'm going to send my son, David, David's Lord, David's son, and he's going to shepherd the people, and he's going to search out for the sheep, and he'll find them. He'll bind up the broken. He'll care for them. And there's a place I just want to end with. He says, "I'm going to bring them peace. I don't think I'm unique in this either." Um, not only do I believe that almost all people are in a measure of, of hurt and we should be more gentle than we are, and I'm preaching to myself, I should be more gentle than I am. Um, we should look out for... Uh, people will show you if you are keen enough to observe them, uh, the crosses that they're dealing with, and, and if you see it, we should treat them a little bit more gently. But another thing that I, I think is true about people... We desperately want to rest. We desperately want rest. We desperately want rest. Um, 
and we don't even really know where to get it. We go on vacations, and you know this is true. I leave more anxious when I come back on my vacation than when you go away. You're so stressed out of your gourd going, and you're stressed out of your gourd being there, and you're stressed out of your gourd coming back. And people say, did you have a restful time? (laughs) I'm stressed out of my gourd. God says to his stressed out people, I'm going to give you rest. I'm going to bring you to a place. And there's going to be no more anxiety, no more fear. He says it a number of times. I'm not, you're not going to be afraid. The anxiety of God's people, real Christians, real Christians, we deal with so much fear. And it's not a sign that you're not a, a Christian. It's a sign that you're a Christian who's not in heaven. But when Christ comes back for us and he takes us to this place, to this beautiful pasture, we'll finally have that rest. And we're going to be in a place with no more enemies, And no more fear, no more fear, in utter rest. What a glorious God we serve. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.